The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink, and I'm very happy to be joined today uh, by Wendy Pfeiffer. And uh, she is the CIO of uh, Nutanix. Um, and she also sits on the board of Qualys, and is it SADA Systems or SADA? SADA. SADA, SADA Systems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, she's the past CIO and VP uh, at GoPro, and she was the head of advanced development division at Yahoo. So yeah. uh, you've had some very interesting positions, to say the least. I did. I did. I always kind of follow my my head and my heart um, uh, wherever I work. I loved GoPro's products. I loved Yahoo's mission. Uh, I love Nutanix where I am now as well. Awesome. Well, we'll talk about all of them here in just a few minutes, but. Uh, just want to talk about a couple of things before you and I start having a conversation here. Um, Wendy has been named uh, one of Silicon Republic's tech titans. She got an Orby for Bay Area Enterprise CIO of the Year. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Fisher Center for Data Analytics named her CIO of the Year. Um, those are pretty big deals, so congratulations. Thank you. Uh, one of the, the ones I'm proudest of is uh, the, the National Diversity Council uh, named me one of the, the top uh, most influential women in tech. And, and that matters a lot, uh, given the, the mission of the Diversity Council. Yeah, that's big. Um, one of the questions I'll dive into it right now, but uh, in an industry that is so heavily um, male driven, mm-hmm. how is it to be a strong leader woman in uh, that industry. So you noticed I'm a woman. Good. <laughs> <I did. laughs> um, you know what? Uh, I will tell you that for most of my career, the fact that I was a woman uh, was not a thing for me or for any of the places where I worked. I wasn't like the other folks, um, but, but that was for a lot of reasons, not just my gender. Only recently, maybe it's my advanced age or the fact that I'm pretty senior, um, has, you know, the, the universe reached out to me and said, hey, you need to represent. There's, you know, little girls who want to be like you someday and they want to know, you know, how you got there and, and, and you know, what that's all about. And, and so what I can tell you is that I've always worked with all my heart and with all my brain. Um, I am deeply interested in what I do, and I happen to be a nerd and a techie and, and a trekkie. Um, and, and, you know, I think uh, I just show up as someone who's interested and engaged and so on. Um, I would say that that is advice for anyone. I, at the same time, I'm aware of the fact that um, for a lot of men that I work with, the fact that I am female is a thing. And sometimes it's a positive thing and sometimes it's a negative thing. Ultimately, um, most of us as human beings, we are, we are separate alien creatures from each other. We really are. Um, we, 
we first uh, sort of see our differences. We try to connect around the things that we have in common, but most of us, male, female, any gender, any race, we're, we're sort of running our own game. We're sort of um, in our, on our own little island. And, and the key is being able to connect with the, the people that you need in order to get stuff done. And uh, being able to see all the people available to you, no matter what uh, their ethnicity, their uh, you know sexual orientation, their political party, their religion, being able to see all those people around you who can help with the aim of your company or your team or your project, and connect with those folks, that's that's the key, and that's what separates leaders from followers. I love it. Yeah, it's. Uh... The the question I had was like, and I, I love the answer because I think it's all about the way that you position yourself. And if you take a positive outlook instead of a pessimistic, pessimistic outlook, there's no doubt that there's been uh, things in the past where uh, women weren't treated fairly or evenly. Mm-hmm. And it probably mm-hmm. still happens to this day, but it's something we're working on. Mm-hmm. And it's just great to see strong women leaders that are mm-hmm. paving the way. Because my mom, you know, it's like she raised me in a small town in the in Midwest. Um, without her, I would be nowhere, uh, figuratively and literally. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, I- <laughs> but it's like you know, it's so many times, you know, I, I hear so many stories from different people that you know, women are the ones who really just make things happen. And mm-hmm. in this tech driven world where there's so many men involved, I've been in it for about 25 years. I own a tech recruiting company, an mm-hmm. IT staffing company. And slowly I just see kind of women taking over and moving into those leadership roles. And it's so refreshing because we need that diversity in the workplace to make everything run smoothly. Yeah, yeah. And I think women in leadership is a big deal because the next step after diversity is equity. Um, and, and equity is something that, uh, you know, women are playing the catch up game around. But as more women enter leadership roles across all industries, um, then, you know, we tend to create organizations that are more diverse. And that then leads to more equity, more women in leadership, and, you know, wash, rinse, repeat, repeat. Um, I will say, though, um, you know, I, I really, I, I don't know that I, I am on the same page as all of my peers in, on this topic, but um, I am, I'm looking forward to the entrance of Gen Z into the workplace. Um, it, you know, this, this new generation, uh, fully digital native generation that's entering the workplace, um, these folks are also very identity neutral, maybe because they come from this digital uh, space where um, identity is based on not so much on who you know, but perhaps what you know or your degree of connectedness. And so um, this is this is a real hope for the future because uh, status, um, contribution, um, you know, even just uh, you know, uh, rank, uh, those things aren't based on what you look like or who you know in this new generation, but they're based on uh, achievement and they're based on persistence and things like that. And so I think we may just completely um, 
obviate any advice I could give to folks about uh, being female and having a career in tech um, in the next 10 years or so as a new generation joins the workforce. Meanwhile, um, I have noticed there are a lot of men in tech and a lot of men in positions of leadership. And one thing I've tried really hard to do throughout my career and in my life in general is to show up authentically as myself. Uh, I noticed that a lot of women who are in senior leadership positions essentially take on mannish uh, traits. I'm being super um, stereotypical here, but you know, you don't have to be um, uh, tough, authoritative, um, uh, ambitious um, in order to be successful. Um, I am feminine. I'm a mom. I love to cook. Um, I also am a pretty badass technologist. And um, all of those things can live together side by side harmoniously uh, and, and still don't diminish the fact that I'm, um, I'm a leader, I'm a, I'm a good technologist, I'm, I'm a, a good CIO, I'm a good uh, corporate board member. So I, I think it's really important um, to more than anything else, um, show up as ourselves. And then, you know, ultimately, if you just keep showing up every day, eventually they have to give it to you. That's my theory. Yeah. Uh, honesty and truth go a long way, you yeah. know? Uh, yeah. And we suck at anything other than that anyway, right? Um, people who come across as disingenuous, um, they tend to, uh, you know, sort of distance uh, themselves from other people. As a leader, you can't make people do things. Um, I mean, unless you're, you know, like a despot or something, but, um, you know, as a leader, you can't make people do things. They have to want to follow. And, and so you have to, you know, you have to be headed in a direction that people want to go and, and you have to be worthy of them following you and um, disingenuous um, self-conscious uh, um, mean-spirited people uh, tend to not be followed with some notable exceptions. Yeah. And they, uh, they kind of distance themselves probably with the fear of being found out, Yeah, you know, so because so yeah, much so much fear involved in all those things. If you're living a lie, there is nothing but fear involved in every move you make where yeah. if you're honest and true and humble, then, you know, you're an open book and mm -hmm. people can believe in that. So I wholeheartedly agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the key and it's not always easy to show up that way. Um, especially when, when you flub something. Um, but at, at the end of the day, um, that's, that's the only skill I have is to show up every day. Well, even when you, uh, when, when you or me or anybody else, when you flub something, when something happens and you take ownership in it and you mm -hmm. go and fix it right away and work the problem from clients, coworkers, whatever, you get so much respect back by just facing it and mm -hmm. taking it head on and uh, really gain the respect around you, even if you do screw something up. Yeah. No one ever asked me in these podcasts, like, have you ever been fired from a job because you really, really deserved it? And, you know, somehow that's never in like the senior leader. But yes, I have. Thank <laughs> you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have, too. And it was a great move because that's when I started my company. So I'd like wow. to thank her for firing me. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> To thank that so-and-so for firing you. <laughs> no, uh, I probably deserved it. But uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up here is uh, you're a Minnesota Vikings fan. 
Yes, I am. So am I. I I, I moved out to California about uh, 15 years ago from Minneapolis, and I brought the Purple Pride with me. Awesome. Wow. I, and I don't meet many of you out here. So I know there's, there's very few of us out here and uh, I'm, I'm the, I'm the person yelling skull at the TV um, every weekend and uh, you know, well, watching. I have a story. I have a story about why I am a Minnesota Vikings fan. I was going to ask you, so please do tell. So when I was 12 years old, my parents trusted me to take my first babysitting job and it was a little boy next door um, and his dad on uh, Monday nights um, had to go uh, do something or other, you know, and, and so I would go next door and babysit this little boy. And I discovered uh, Monday night football back in the, the era of John Madden and uh, even before John Madden. And back in the day, um, the, the Vikings were um, uh, just a beautiful team to watch. But also this was back in the time where Madden and others would really explain what was happening. They would explain the, the, the plays and there'd be the X's and O's. And of course this was before the, you know, the, the live, you know, circling of players, but they'd, they'd lay out the X's and O's and so on. And um, this, this little boy was very into football too. And so, um, you know, I just, I just learned, I just sort of soaked this up and as I soaked it up, um, I kind of got a very, um, I don't know, a very Viking-centric, um, maybe a little bit, I, you know, I hate to mention this, a cheesehead-centric uh, view of football, uh, but really that, that sort of offense, that sort of defense um, back in the days of some amazing players. And so I started following the Vikings and I wanted them to win. And from that day to this, they have not won the Super Bowl. And so <laughs> I, I'm not one to give up. I am I am remaining a faithful Vikings fan until the day that they win the Super Bowl, uh, hopefully in my lifetime, although I ain't getting any younger. <laughs> well, I just, uh, one of the first NFL players that was on this podcast was Robert Smith. And- oh, there's been NFL players on this podcast? Oh, oh yeah. Thanks. Yeah, wow. Robert Robert Smith, uh, Minnesota running back, uh, was on here about uh, three months ago. No way! Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. If you ever want to like have another, you know, Minnesota player and me on at the same time, I would totally. Love <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Now you're also a Warriors fan. I am. Yes. So uh, I- tell me what you like about the Warriors. Oh, everything! Uh, first of all, I love basketball, um, and. I, I, maybe I guess I like a hard luck story. You know, the Warriors, I mean, we were terrible forever, like forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And then we kind of, you know, finally we got good. Uh, but I was a fan before. I'm, I'm a very happy fan now. Um, I, I love the work ethic. Um, I, I love the, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of some of the, the guys who play um, you know, guys like Steph Curry, who are, you know, he, he's, he's an admirable human being. He's, he's, um, you know, motivated by, by his faith and his family and, um, you know, guys like Steve Kerr, the, you know, uh, I mean, the just, but mainly it's just the game watching the splash bros watching, um, just everyone on the team, including Draymond, um, you know, every single one of them, um, are, are, uh, just, um, a first class players in their own right and, um, play with, with courage and with heart. And, yeah. and it's 
super, super fun to watch. Um, even when they don't win the game, it's still a fun game to watch. They're also like super haphazard on their way to every single victory. And so I like the, you know, uh, the, the suspense of every game. Yeah, they're a fun team to watch. I, I'm not a huge basketball fan. I've been to a couple of Warriors games with clients. And, uh, you know, just fun. I mean, it's a fun atmosphere. It's a fun team to watch. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to see them kind of in the ups and downs that they're going through right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's going to be fun to see where they end up. Now, yeah. you're a Star Trek fan like we talked about before. I've got a couple of questions for you. All right. What is Chekhov's first name? Interesting. Um, uh, Anton? Pavel. Pavel, Pavel Chekhov, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? And my husband and I just finished watching the entire uh, first uh, series. We're, we've just gone into the next generation. We're, we're super bored in COVID. So we said, let's watch every Star Trek episode from the very, very beginning. And right now we're just arguing over, do we watch the appropriate movies in between each series? Oh, right. Uh, he wants to, I, I want to go right into next generation. So, so then uh, my next question is Kirk or Picard? Absolutely, Picard. I mean, that's what Ed said too. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's so interesting watching both the series in juxtaposition. Um, you know, it's so clear that Picard is the you know is the Shakespearean Patrick Stewart is the Shakespearean actor. You know, right. as as compared to Kirk, I will say that I had neglected to truly understand the level of '60s awesomeness in the first series. I mean. You know, Kirk got every female, alien <laughs> or not, you know, within the first three minutes, you just knew. Um, and, and you know, his sort of, he sort of had the power of like the Austin Powers fembots, you know, just like, you know, walked in the room and I was like, woo, you know. <laughs> and, but, but Picard kind of has to, he has to work for it a little bit more, you know. So I, I like him. He's, he's an introvert, clearly. You know, I'm watching the the first couple of episodes where, you know, he doesn't want to see children on, on you know, anywhere on board the ship. And so I'm enjoying his um, discomfort and, and his um, introvertedness, but also he's super hot. <laughs> so I found out that your husband is a musician, as am I and Ed. Um, one of the songs I heard, it has a total 80s vibe. Now, has he is he a lifelong musician? How long has he been playing music? Yeah, he is a lifelong musician. Uh, he's been playing music ever since. Uh, I think his, you know, I think his dad got him a guitar uh, when he was in uh, junior high, um, and he's been composing songs, uh, many of which are still around uh, since that day. What he really is, he's he's a composer, and he composes in. Uh, many, many different genres. Um, he does instrumental pieces. Uh, he does jazz pieces. Um, he, for the longest time when I met him, he was into beat music. Do you, are you familiar with what beat music is? Yep. Sort of the Beatles, you know, four-part vocal harmonies, uh, a couple of guitars, bass and drums. Um, and, and, and then, um, you know, adult contemporary, all different kinds of music. And recently his latest album is called Aqua and it's uh, got a very Caribbean uh, reggae island vibe. Um, and, and then he's also, uh, you know, composed for other artists as well. And 
Um, you know, he just sort of swims in, in music. And I just, I used all the musical terms that I know just now. So you can't <laughs> ask me anything else because I just, I'm, I'm just a fan. <laughs> now, do you guys have kids? We do. We've got a couple of teenagers, a 15 year old son and a 13 year old daughter. So you got a, a busy household. How is everybody dealing with the whole, uh, COVID, uh, lockdown? so to speak. Was everybody, everybody working out of the same house? Do you have kids? I have a two and a half year old son. So, um, uh, we don't really have to deal with it too much. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, without, uh, will he ever listen to this? Hmm. My 15 year old son has not seen a girl outside of the family in person in a year. Uh, <laughs> you do the math. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah, it's, um, it is really difficult. Um, so it, it's weird. It's a mix, right? I, I'll go back to this Gen Z thing. Um, even before the lockdown, both of my kids um, had rich social media lives. And, you know, it, it's easy for us to say like, oh, well, what these guys are doing is they're, um, you know, they're playing video games. But if you kind of dig into like what the plane of video games actually involves, it's really these groups of young people who are socializing, communicating, you know, playing out different scenarios and fantasies, um, interacting with each other, um, learning things about each other, um, having fairly rich conversations. A lot of these games um, involve a high degree of creativity and complexity. And so they were already kind of relating this way. And, and in that way, um, I've seen both of my kids stay connected and um, actually be, you know, sort of pretty healthy in terms of their social interactions. Of course, there is no substitute for in-person. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, there are just challenges in the educational system, but, um, you know, it's not a loss. Um, this is a time of, of great growth and learning um, and a time when I'm seeing, especially folks in Gen Z, um, lead the way and, and, and do so with a lot of heart. You know, they're teaching me how to show up. Like as a great example, um, you know, my, my son and daughter are real familiar with, you know, YouTubers and people who have podcasts and so on. And you know, they've helped me with my setup here in, in you know, um, helped me to kind of understand um, how to show up in a way that's, you know, that's attractive and, and you know, how to have, you know, good audio and just things like that, that I, I never would have had before. So um, I'm, I'm feeling uh, grateful to them and I'm learning from them. And I'm also, you know, deeply concerned about the future. It's interesting because I just, uh, Last week, I uh, talked to uh, the CIO from Zoom, and we were having the same conversation about um, millennials, Gen Z, and looking at my child, Johnny, he's two and a half years old, to yeah. see him on an iPad is unbelievable. You know, our generation, we had to learn all those things. Now, this is just what these kids know. Yes. And to it, there's there's nothing else that existed before that for them. Right. So the understanding of technology for them is just I, I can't even imagine where technology is going with the understanding that these kids have now. 
because mm-hmm. it's just going to what what's been done with the last couple generations with technology is just going to be wrecked with what they're going to do with it. I mean, it's just going to be so over the moon, you know, with all the things you're going to be able to do. It's so exciting. And right now in the IT space, um, I I love this. I love IT. It's my sport. Um, But but right now in the IT space, um, we had this huge thing happen about a year ago where um, in every industry possible, people pivoted uh, from working inside of offices to working remotely. And, and what really working remotely means is that um, enterprise IT technology and applications and tools are now living in a consumer tech environment. You know, I'm connecting uh, to you over my gaming computer, over public Wi-Fi, public internet. Um, you know, I might be using my smartphone. And so um, all of these technologies and tools and so on are, are swimming together, are playing together in the same ecosystem. Um, As we move forward, as we go back to more hybrid work environments, hybrid school environments, we're not going to be able to extricate this, this in many ways, far superior consumer tech and consumer tech experience from the enterprise experience or the educational experience. We've got to move forward together. We've just increased the size of our ecosystem, increased the complexity of our ecosystem. We still have to secure it. We still have to make it performant. We still have to uh, take care for around um, interaction design, et cetera, but we no longer control um, the boundaries. And, and because of that, um, it's a brave new world and the people most suited to just slicking on into that brave new world are people like your two and a half year old who, for, for whom it's not a brave new world. It's just the world. Yeah. And just, I was thinking while you were talking, Imagine if this would have happened, the pandemic, 10 or 20 years ago, it would have mm-hmm. shut down everything, right? Yeah. And yeah. in all reality, what it did was open up new boundaries. Yeah. It, just, it just completely shoved them open because with staffing, I talk with managers all the time. Well, like, well, will you look at a remote person? And many times they go, no, I got to have somebody in the office. I got to be talking to them every day. And it just completely flung that open where, Mm -hmm. you know, when I'm talking with people that are clients of mine now, I'm like, it's not even a problem. Everybody is remote now. Mm -hmm. So, and it's been proven that they can be productive or more productive Mm -hmm. working out of their house and they've got a better work life balance. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really an amazing thing. So as many bad things that have come out of COVID, there's just as many, if not more positives. And when we do come out the other side of it, I think it's going to be like you talked about a brave new world where it's just like, wow, it's going to be a better life for a lot of people. I, I hope so. You know, it's, it's a mix. Like you say, um, back to our original, uh, topic around diversity, um, the ability to work from anywhere and to um, connect jobs with remote workers uh, it really opens up some diverse sources of talent for us across every industry, particularly in the tech industry where we have a shortage of talent. 
it allows us to have access to, to folks who might not have been, you know, close to our geographic centers of technology like Silicon Valley or people who might have to have offset schedules due to uh, family responsibilities. So we can get access to these candidates. On the other end of the spectrum, there's, there's um, a tragedy, but also an opportunity. I was talking with Mike Rowe, the guy who does um, uh, the, the uh, dirty you know, jobs. Jobs. Yeah. I was talking with him and, you know, he has a real passion for um, blue collar workers and, he was talking about the fact that um, the pandemic has disproportionately negatively affected blue collar workers uh, in the U.S. About 45 million people are unemployed due to the COVID pandemic, and they are disproportionately blue collar. And a lot of them are, for example, um, veterans um, who might have come out of active service and gone into uh, blue collar jobs. Um, these are folks who actually could fill many of our openings uh, for technology jobs with almost minimal training and access to remote platforms. And so there's a real opportunity for us to um, sort of raise um, you know, the, the economic status of a large portion of our uh, society if we have the vision uh, and the capability to, to make those connections and we look in places for talent that we haven't looked in the past. And so this is also a time potentially of shifting um, the, the, you know, the diversity and, and the sources of talent of our tech workers. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a, it's a great thought because if we can think outside of the box and have the vision to look past what has normally been done, you know, like where I grew up in the Midwest, you know, some of those parts of those small towns are just decimated and they have been for a couple decades, mm -hmm. you know, so there's plenty of places like that where maybe, you know, with this new way of living, we can go in there and maybe employ some of those people too. So it's a lot of food for thought and hopefully um, some great things will come out of it like that. Yeah. I think back to geographic disbursement, um, you know, I, I love data. Um, I'm, I'm a nerd. Um, and so, you know, we really track in, in my company, we track um, essentially where people are connecting to our infrastructure from. And we have seen, um, you know, from the time that, that the pandemic hit uh, till now, we've been all working remotely in our company, but we've seen a disbursement, you know, from people mostly working in about 30 countries to people working in about 70 countries. Um, from people mostly working in four or five states in the U.S. to people working in all 50 states in the U.S. And again, you know, uh, once that's possible and once we see that that's effective, well, then we look for additional folks in any geography uh, because we know that the model works from any geography. Um, just, just sort of teaching ourselves that lesson over the last year I think is going to have profound, profound effects on, um, you know, if, if nothing else, middle America, um, where, where all of this talent and this capability um, is, but, but folks haven't had access to um, some of the, some of the jobs. So talk about a little bit of uh, what you're doing now uh, with uh, Nutanix. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I'm Nutanix's CIO. Um, and so my responsibility is to ensure that 
Um, our employees have the technology that they need to make them productive. And uh, our business processes are supported by technology as well. And then I also have an external facing view. Nutanix makes a product for IT departments like mine. And so we also use our product. We're the you know, customer zero, if you will. And then we sort of talk about how we use the product and we share that with um, folks externally. And so uh, from my perspective, um, I am learning how to be both an internally focused uh, CIO as well as an externally focused executive. And in our organization, we're doing the coolest stuff right now. Um, we, you know, it, it's this it's this massive time of focus because of this uh, this time of remote work. So, um, what we have done is we have created what we call a hybrid cloud, and uh, what that means is that. Um, we are, we've created a common foundation of our operating system and our hypervisor that runs on any hardware. So it runs on Dell, HP, Lenovo, et cetera. And, and so it runs on servers in my data centers. I've got, you know, six large scale global data centers. And the same operating system and hypervisor run in the public cloud, uh, in AWS, in GCP, in Azure. And so, you can imagine if you have an operating system, a thing like Windows, right, that's running um, the same exact operating system on pick a vendor's hardware um, in any data center, pick a vendor's cloud, um, then you can start to do things like uh, that, that like containerization technology imagines. You can start to write code once and use it anywhere. Uh, you have application mobility, you have access to capacity to storage and compute and network um, that's close to um, your users. And you have the ability to start writing code and doing software defined things uh, that can be reused. And so uh, in short, we've gone from completing about mm, five to 10% of all of our work autonomously to now completing about 85% of all of our work autonomously. Um, we are writing some really good operational code. We're deploying that code and then we're flexing and using that code wherever we need to, for, to, to perform our services. At the same time, this is allowing the people on my team to begin to focus on higher level tasks, more impactful work work that actually helps the rest of the organization and isn't just about keeping the lights on. And so as we're beginning to do that, we're finding uh, that we're enabling employees to be more productive. We're getting engaged more in the, the business of the company and how we can enable that business with technology and operational excellence. And so it's just been this time of growth and transformation and change. Uh, for the, the technologists in my teams and, and the operational experts in my teams as well. And, you know, all of that's to the benefit of Nutanix, um, both using our own products and, and sort of using our own um, skills as IT folks. Um, you know, it's sort of hopefully good for our um, customers uh, because, you know, we can offer our products cost efficiently, um, good for our employees and, and good for our families as well. And um, it's really nice to be in a position um, to, be, to be working in that way. 
Plus it's, it's, um, it's cool uh, to have enough time and enough focus and kind of enough control um, to, to let the ecosystem, um, you know, grow and thrive and develop and see what it's turning into and then be able to share that with my peers uh, across, you know, various industries. So talk to us a little bit about infrastructure as code. Mm -hmm. That's what you do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, first of all, how, how long has that been around? The, the phrase infrastructure as code is pretty new. Um, I like to say that it is IT's version of DevOps. Um, so, so DevOps is this thing where um, developers wanted to um, do things in the public cloud. Um, and in order to do things in public cloud, like to do things in Amazon, um, you know, if you want to write code, you know, you're writing code to a server that exists somewhere. And so what Amazon does is it abstracts that server and it allows you to interact with that server via a software interface, right? So you can, you can spin up an Amazon uh, volume um, and, and then you can, you know, interact with that. You can write code, you can lay down an operating system, you can, uh, you know, scale it out. You can do all of those things but you're never actually touching a server. There are actual servers in, you know, in, in uh, Amazon's infrastructure, but you're never touching those servers. All the things that you're doing, you're doing via software, you're doing remotely, and, and you're um, creating the interactions um, that, you're, that you're creating um, you know, via software. And so we, we say that those are software-defined things, there's software-defined networking and so on. Um, so, so back to, to what we're doing um, at Nutanix, you know, we've looked at that sort of that DevOps view of the world. Um, so the advantage of DevOps is that I don't have to wait for IT. I don't have to wait for provisioning things. Um, I don't have to follow, you know, arbitrary, you know, rules and so on. I don't run out of infrastructure. I can just go ahead and get access to infrastructure and I can, I can run the workloads I want to and I can scale. However, um, what tends to happen in, in, within DevOps organizations is that developers are really, really good at writing very performant um, applications, but they're not so great at creating efficient and performant infrastructure. And so public cloud bills quickly grow because there are all kinds of things that people do when it's sort of in their own data center um, in order to make efficient use of resources that they that they don't know to do in public cloud. So in enter IT, the people who have been incredibly efficiently and securely running infrastructure in data centers, and they've got the operational process down. They know how to conserve electricity. They know how to conserve physical space. They know how to, uh, you know, virtualize systems and so on. And so now, how do we take those skills around uh, operational excellence, and how do we translate those into operating instructions for remote infrastructure? Well, that's infrastructure as code. It's mm. sort of the IT version of DevOps saying we're going to compose infrastructure and run it. Um, you know, wherever we're going to run it in such a way that it is uh, making efficient use, a cost-effective use of resource. And then because I'm able to do that, 
I can also interact with infrastructure very, very quickly, you know, as quick as the machine can uh, provide the instructions. And I can also augment those original instructions with additional machine learning capabilities. And so sort of wrap that all up together. Now imagine if you are uh, interacting with that infrastructure as code and um, you can use that same set of instructions for your own physical on-premises infrastructure or infrastructure in public cloud. Um, that's an incredibly powerful model. That model is called hybrid cloud. And it says, I'm able to run a single cloud, a, a single logical grouping of resources that are combined on-premises physical resources that if I wanted to, I could walk up and touch. I could configure a top of rack switch if I wanted to. And at the same time, I can, I can issue those same instructions to the, the infrastructure in the public cloud. The, the case in point is a cluster. Um, so, uh, you know, at Nutanix, we have a product called clusters. I can compose a, you know, a, a cluster of servers. I can compose a, a server that may have a node in my Reno data center, a node in my Phoenix data center, and a third node in AWS. And I can run that as a single cluster with the same code. And I can interact with it. I can do networking. I can do security. I can, I can build VMs. I can do all of those things um, via code in a software-defined way, um, you know, very, very simply and very um, uh, performantly. I will tell you during this time of pandemic, um, it's really, really helped my team to be able to do all of our operations, even our physical data center operations remotely via code. That's amazing. So is it is it a lot more cost effective than the old way of doing business? I would figure it is, right? Yeah, on a bunch of levels it is. It's um it's cost effective in terms of space and bandwidth and electrical consumption. It's also cost effective because um I can choose the um you know the best place to run each workload. So if I have a um a workload that needs to scale out at particular times of the month, I can uh, you know, choose to run uh, that scale out part of the workload in a more expensive public cloud environment. Um, and I, and on the other hand, I can run other parts of that workload that don't require scale out in a, in a fixed capacity data center. Um, it's also really cost effective uh, with personnel because ultimately um, our people, you know, don't, I don't need to have the I don't know, the HP experts and the Dell experts and the NetApp experts and the cloud experts. Um, I have a, a single team who are expert in our, our cloud, our instructions, um, and, and they're running, you know, very, very effectively. That is so cool. I'm going to pivot just a little bit and wanted to talk a little bit about your team and the last year or so. And uh, at the beginning of 2020, none of us saw this coming. You know, wow. it was all rose-colored glasses, life's going to be great, you know, and then all of a sudden, COVID hits. Um, it left IT in kind of a reactive but critical role. Mm. So what was your mindset when COVID hit in early 2020? Well, um, funny you asked. So um, I had just had my um, all team on site the week before our shutdown. 
So I had people from all over the globe. We were all together in, in one place. Um, and, and we had just spent a week together talking about the fact that we wanted to um, move ahead to actually implement a logical model of running a hybrid cloud. And so we had spent time together, we had mapped it out, we had talked about the potential benefits, we had taken a good look at our own um, current state, our, our own skills and capabilities, how we were organized, our roles and responsibilities, and we had really dug in and we'd come up with a, a starting plan. And then we all went to the four corners of the globe, you know, to, to, to work. And so um, what was great about that is we very quickly discovered that the first things we needed to do were the first things we had planned to do. And, and we had some starting instructions for those. And, and in short, it kind of got down to, um, you know, documenting um, and, and then, you know, implementing modern technologies and, and then running, you know, collecting data and improving. And so we were, we were in that mode. Um, and we also had some advantages. We were, we were kind of fans of this model of working already. So, so at, a, at a high level, we were kind of emotionally, socially, mentally, and even um, physically ready Although that's not, you know, why how we had originally intended uh, to work, um, or, or the reason we had originally intended to work. Now, um, I will tell you, as a leader, I agonized over this thing. Um, I I am a very um, I'm a very different leader when we're all um, in offices. It turns out than I am when we're all remote. When we're all in offices, I really like to allow people. Um, the time to reach their own conclusions. Um, I don't mind if there are mismatches in um, ideas or plans. Um, I sort of like the mess of, um, you know, people working through um, the best ways to do things. But that didn't work for uh, the team and it didn't work for me when we were all sort of on our, in our, you know, home islands. Um, and I learned that I needed to be more specific, more directive, uh, that I had to um, explain things very clearly, that I had to set firm priorities and communicate them. Uh, I also had to break our teams up into smaller teams and teams that were focused on uh, very specific, um, understandable goals. And so I had to do a lot around um, how I show up. Um, I had to do a lot around, um, you know, how the team is composed. Um, and, and then, you know, ultimately, the, the, uh, the miracle for me was um, really doubling down on um, working in an agile mode. And so I set priorities for the team every month, we have a focus, um, it, you know, I figure it's like, it's kind of like, um, you know, for every party, there's a theme, you know, you got to have a theme or it's not a good party. Right. So like every month we have a theme, man, um, like this month is um, automation month. And every single member of the team, no matter what their function um, is in an agile, uh, you know, manner, um, has a story or two that they've written about automating something um, in their workflow and their environment. Um, and they're working on that as a second priority. The first priority is KTLO work, keep the lights uh, on work. 
And the second priority is automating things. And next month, the, the theme is monitoring and we'll be working on monitoring and you know, creating those sort of super clear themes and then creating a centralized, um, you know, sort of agile methodology for um, defining the work, defining the priorities um, has changed the productivity and also changed the happiness of, of the team. Um, that's really different than um, how I was showing up as a leader a year ago. Meanwhile, my team members, you know, they have these skills, they have these capabilities, they have their own uh, ways of collaborating and so on. Um, and they're continuing to thrive. They're continuing to use those, those skills and things. But I had to create um, an environment that made that, um, you know, more possible. Yeah. And sometimes like in situations like this, we have to pivot, look deep inside ourselves and figure out how we can be better leaders to our team. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, speaking of a theme, one of my next questions was, what's your theme for 2021? <laughs> um, I, I have trouble separating um, personal and professional in things like that. Um, 2021 for me is a year of grace, both personally and professionally. Um, it's a it's a year of seeking first to understand and then to be understand understood. Um, it's a year of um, going a little bit easier on um, everything from our institutions to uh, my individual team members uh, to my kids um, to the school system. Um, uh, you know, I, I find that, um, we need some margins right now as human beings and in society, um, you know, there, there isn't a lot of value in, um, in writing people hard right now or in, um, uh, you know, calling people out, uh, because there are so many elements of, our, you know, our success and our existence that are out of our control. And so um, I rely on God's grace um, in my life. Um, I am trying to show up the same way um, in every other aspect of my life. And uh, a lot of the time that means that um, I have to, you know, uh, exhibit humility. I have to ask forgiveness. I have to um, pause in my initial frustrated reaction and and truly listen. Um, and it's um, that's hard. it's 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 exhausting sometimes to do. Um, and it's it's different than um, the sport of being a, a c-suite executive, right? it's it's different than the past. In the past, um, you know, we were really measured on, um, outcomes and how um, decisive we are and how directive we are. Um, and I sort of have a lot of those, those characteristics naturally. So I'm having to learn um, about, um, you know, just the, the, the grace uh, that's necessary um, to show to all, all of my colleagues and team members and, and even, you know, customers and prospects and, and uh, so on. And, and, you know, uh, that has to come from a place of, um, personal health and personal confidence as well. And so, you know, it starts with um, uh, looking at our own selves and seeing our own selves for who we are and, and saying, you know, 
hey, that's okay. Um, uh, this is probably about as good as I'm going to get this year. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wish I could uh, do more. But on the other hand, um, it's kind of pretty awesome, uh, the stuff I'm doing right now. And hopefully I can, I can help some other people with that as well. Every day I get up and I pray, may I be a help to my family? May I be a help to my team? May I be a help to my company? Um, give me wisdom and strength and, and, you know, thank you for your grace. And that's, that's where I live. It's a great theme. And it sounds like we're on the same track because that's kind of the same thing I do every day too. Um, you know, and it, uh, I'm writing a book right now. It's also called True Ambition. And it really just talks about what you just said. Get up, do the right thing, do the best you can. That's really all we can do. You know, it's, uh, there's, only, there's only so many trips around the sun, you know, and all we can really do is do good by our fellow human beings, you know, and it'll just be provided to us if we do the right thing. So, I appreciate that answer. Um, I had a couple more work questions, and one mm -hmm. of them was a very interesting time right now because access to materials has been globally uh, a really big problem. Supply chains globally have been a problem. Mm -hmm. What is your advice given these new roadblocks? Mm. Or what, what have you ran into? I mean, in short, um, so so we have this superpower in IT, and, and that is that um, we are this blend of operational excellence and technical excellence. And so uh, we have had for 30 years or more a discipline called IT portfolio management, and it's a lot like a stock portfolio management, right? The idea is that, um, uh, you know, you always have sort of a mix of things you can do. Um, you know, you don't just have um, a primary circuit, you have a circuit and a failover. You've got, you know, uh, two or three vendors who you rely on. Um, and so I think we just extend out that model in these times. It's one of the valuable things about uh, being able to, um, you know, have a, a, like a hybrid cloud, right? That what makes that model so attractive is that, um, you know, I've got optionality there. Uh, look, if, um, you, you know, a great example in my world is, um, you know, we, we had an environment in one of our data centers where we were running Citrix and uh, Citrix was providing us with um, persistent desktops for a lot of our software developers. And as they pivoted to work from home and a lot less of them were in offices, they were connecting to our Citrix environment from home offices and a lot more of the time. And so I needed to build out that environment. But at the time, there were some supply chain issues and I couldn't get the servers that I needed for that. So instead, uh, we rolled out a, a frame environment in public cloud in AWS. And that frame environment pr provided the same thing, you know, desktop as a service. Um, but it was another option in an environment that had that capacity for me at the time. So the complexity for IT is essentially, I'm not replacing one with the other. Now I have to run both. But if I can uh, sort of open my mind to that optionality and offer both, then I no longer have those um, supply chain issues that are so impacting. And so it's, it's just having a, a structure an operational structure that allows me to 
um, you know, source and consume uh, capacity and, and, you know, capability and so on from multiple sources and then balance that. And, and some of the things we talked about, you know, enable that for sure. Um, but, you know, ultimately it's having a, a mixed portfolio of options and being able to execute on those in, in a very um, operationally effective way. That's cool. Yeah. I was, uh, while you were talking about that, I'm just like, if you've got all those options and you're able to think kind of outside the box a little bit, there's all kinds of different ways you can go. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, again, taking a lesson from consumer tech, I, I, I just think about this a lot because we're, we're in this like swimming in this soup of consumer tech and enterprise tech. But, you know, on my smartphone, um, you know, I've got Facebook and, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of, you know, interacting on Facebook. Okay. Um, but, you know, I don't say like, well, you know, I've chosen Facebook and therefore Facebook is my social media standard. And there's no way that I would use Twitter or Instagram or YouTube or anything else, because obviously I've chosen the one thing. No, I've got a whole mix of social media apps on my, my phone. And I don't need someone to tell me when to use which one or how to use them. I make those choices myself. Those are, those are very personal choices. They're not complex. Uh, I don't need a map. That um, it's a very natural thing, and the same thing needs to be true in terms of uh, the technology that we make available to to companies and to our employees um, from IT. Um, employees will use the technology that's most performant for them, that helps them the most with their with productivity. It's for reasons like that. You know, I run full Google Suite, um, Google Docs, you know, all that, and I run full Microsoft Suite. Uh, in, in my environment. And, you know, people have really strong preferences, one or the other. In the old days, we used to declare, you know, we're something, we've picked one and everybody who liked the other one, too bad, man, we're right. using this one. That, that's, that is so last decade. Yeah. Um, now what we do is we say, you know, we're IT. It's our job to make sure that those two, you know, chosen uh, productivity suites are as well integrated and secured as we can make them. And then we allow people to choose. And I think that model, as long as you're um, controlling it granularly enough that you're not paying twice for those things, right? Um, you know, that model is actually, uh, you know, directly tied to employee happiness, which is directly tied to employee productivity. And, and the same measures exist in the, in the consumer space, right? Um, has to do with adoption and use of uh, applications and tools and so on. I always give the example of Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go uh, was a, an absolutely unique and never before seen augmented reality use of a mobile phone. And yet um, when it was deployed, um, we didn't have to watch training videos. We didn't have to go to a class. We didn't have to have somebody explain it to us and draw on the whiteboard. Um, all we did is we downloaded the app. In fact, 10 million people downloaded the app in the first hour and, and broke everything. And as soon as we started that application, um, we were catching all the Pokemon we could. Yeah. How um, many years ago was that? Now, I remember people running everywhere to get the Pokemon. Yeah, it, was, it was about four years ago, actually. Um, and so, you know, looking back to that, right, that was a completely different use of your mobile phone, the camera, you know, there were adults playing games that oh, never yeah. played before, right? And yet, what made that work? It was this excellent interaction design. 
Um, and it was also this, this sort of notion that there's, a, there's optionality around how we use the resources that, that we already have in our hands. And so that's the model for IT now. Well, we look back, I'm just thinking while you were talking about the Pokemon, and uh, when I first moved to the Bay Area, I went down to Fremont, I think it was. I was living mm -hmm. in San Ramon at the time, and I printed out uh, a Google map or a Yahoo map or something like that because that's what was available at the time. Yeah. And I remember driving down, and whoever the smart person was who put two different mission exits Mm -hmm. on uh was it 680 that's what you mean yeah, oh, yeah. The i turned yeah. off on the first mission exit and i just kept on driving and then it you know, i was like this isn't right and it took me about a half hour to finally make it to the interview i was going to but just so quickly we move a couple years down the road and my phone tells me exactly where to go my mm -hmm. gps tells me exactly where to go and mm -hmm. there's no thinking about it anymore it, yeah. I was talking to somebody else the other day about the fact that I still remember my grandmother's phone number from back when we had rotary phones. Yeah. But I don't know yeah. anybody's phone number today. I know. I know what you mean. I still remember 227-2921, um, and it means nothing now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it, it's, so, it, it's so refreshing to see the new improvements in technology and how much nicer it makes our lives. I don't have to think about it anymore. I just know that I'm going to the San Francisco airport and somehow I get there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, taking lessons from consumer tech, you know, I loved working at GoPro. I, I chose to work at GoPro on purpose. I wanted to work for a consumer tech company. Um, and there I learned that it's actually super important for complex technology to be fun um, and, and for the use of that technology to be fun. Um, and, and what I, a what a fun company that had to be, right? Oh, so much fun. Uh, and so, you know, I take that into the work that I do now. And that's a huge lesson for educators, for technologists. Um, you know, human beings, um, we we use it better and we use it more when the technology we use is um, is enjoyable, is fun in some way. And, and so, um, you know, that's OK. Um, and I think being able to blend those things and, and understand that, you know, um, having an enjoyable experience while you are getting work done doesn't make you less productive. In fact, you know, if it's human beings doing the work, it, it actually makes us more productive and more right. engaged. So how do you expect your organization to change permanently compared to how your organization was set up prior to the pandemic? I don't know, man. Um, I don't know. I'm still learning. Um, I have made changes in my org structure that were um, directly related to uh, being responsive to the pandemic. For example, I created an end user computing group that just focuses on the end user computing experience, um, no matter where or how that experience plays out, whether it's on, you know, an end user's um, mobile phone at home or, you know, in a, a from a kiosk somewhere um, or on a work issued computer, you know, we care about that. Um, I don't know if I need that structure forever, but um, but I need it for now. And, and there's been such value in it. Maybe we'll keep it. So I'm um, I'm learning. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen next, um, but I do expect that 
um, will take all the data from from the things we're doing now, and they will uh, they'll inform you know the decisions that we make going forward. Um, but but there's some big new chunks of data that we're still waiting for, uh, just to try to understand how the how the pandemic plays out and um, kind of how you know the thing I don't know that I'm interested in is um, how has this last year changed human beings, and and what will it be like. Um, when we're in more, you know, hybrid, more in-person environments, um, just what will it be like? Because uh, ultimately, the technology that we provide to folks will have to be, um, you know, an augmentation to that. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting um, topic to bring up because I I think it's going to depend on the human being. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many people that I talk to um, that are so positive and nothing has really affected them throughout this. There's Mm -hmm. also a big chunk of people that are very pessimistic about what's happened. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a divide in the country and there's just a lot of things going on where it's just, uh, it's, it's not worrisome to me, but it's worrying, you know, for everybody, you know, it's just, I wish that people could, like we talked about before, if the glass is half full, fill that thing up, mm-hmm. you know, don't dump out the rest and sit there and, you know, bitch and whine about the glass being empty. You, you just pour it out yeah. yourself. Um, there, there's a lot of things that are out of our hands, but most everything in our lives is very controllable by us. You mm-hmm. know, if we can just sit there and, you know, take the reins of what we do have control over is with, with which is just ourselves. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's kind of back to my, my thing about grace. Okay. So, um, uh, grace doesn't exist without justice, right? Um, justice says, look, I, I, I believe there's, you know, there was a right thing and a wrong thing, whether or not the right or the wrong thing happened. Um, I'm moving forward in grace. Um, and so I, I think that's a key for us moving forward societally is, uh, I don't even know if that's a word. I hate that word. I hate that I said it. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a key for us moving forward in society um, is, is not, not the notion that um, like, you know, um, ah, who cares? It doesn't matter, you know, um, or like I'm on my side and I don't, I'll never think of, you know, I'll never be on your side. That, that thing, that's impossible. Like we're never going to be on the same side, but it's this notion that even though there are sides and, you know, in, in by each of our own calculus, there's right and wrong. Um, the higher good is for us to show each other and ourselves some grace in the situation in the face of justice, in the face of rightness and wrongness and past hurts and past issues, still the only way forward is with grace. And and I I think that's massively um, important for us to practice and to, and, you know, and and again, like, I don't know, I I just don't know how that's going to play out. Um, I comfort myself with the, with the fact that, you know, I, I don't think anybody knows so, you know, my, my way forward is as good as anyone else's right now. Yeah. Amen to that. I, I, I totally agree. Uh, I stopped watching the news a long time ago. Uh, I've really tried to distance myself from a lot of the noise 
and really just count on the people in my community, my family, my company, my clients, and just the things that I can really have an effect on mm-hmm. and stay away from the rest of it. And it's really made a huge difference in um, my state of mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, I really agree with a lot of what you just said. Um, so what was your first job ever? Oh boy. Um, my first job was, uh, well, my, my first job for, yeah, okay. That's tough. Um, I had two first jobs. Um, one, I worked at NASA Ames research center in the space biology research program when I was a junior in high school. Um, and two, I sold shoes at Tom McCann shoe store in San Jose, uh, right out of high school. And what did you learn from both of those jobs? Um, I learned my love for large systems, uh, at NASA Ames. And, um, I learned that, uh, kids, Kind of, kind of suck on a, a few different levels. Uh, from Tom McCann selling kids' shoes. Okay. Who was your best teacher ever, and why? Um, you know, there's I, I've thought a, a about this one. Uh, you know, a, a lot. Um, it's tough. Um, I would say probably Mrs. Shannon, my fifth grade teacher. Um, or Mrs. Bright, my second grade teacher. You know what, it's Mrs. Bright, my second grade teacher, because she taught me to fold my tongue because uh, all the other kids were like doing that thing where they roll their tongue, you know, and uh, I couldn't do it. And she said, well, let's see what you can do. And mm-hmm, mm, <laughs> I can fold my tongue, see? And so she said like, you gotta, you gotta like, you gotta go, you know, sell that and see how many kids can do that. And she like taught me how to, get out there and like own the cool thing about, you know, who I am. Um, and I, I've never forgotten it. It was like the biggest shot in the arm. That's awesome. Uh, I love great teachers. I've got a couple of them and, uh, I, I ask everybody that same question. <laughs> so not long ago you had a horrible fall and you crushed wow. your wrist and severed arteries and tendons and every bone in your hand, right? Yep. Yeah. Now, how many surgeries did you have coming back from that? Uh, a couple of big ones. So did you regain the use and feeling completely of that hand? Uh, yes. Um, although for one hour each day, I'm not responsible. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's like thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I did. Um, but I had... Um, I had extreme, extreme pain. Um, I went through a period of um, just feeling like it might not be worth it uh, to to wake up every day. Um, and so, I, although I had um, the use of my hand, it was at a cost, right? I, I had this sort of choice of we could we could sever the nerve bundle, and I could not have the use of my hand, or it could be stitched back together in such a way that it was very, very sensitive. And so, of course, I chose the, the use of my hand, um, but it was um, it was months and months of a lot of pain. And um, I, I'll, in the first, you know, six months, I, I was on like for the for for six months, I was on, you know, a significant prescription of Dilaudid, which is um, 
you know, like, uh, you know, you know, um, rich people do that. And, and, you know, people without prescriptions shoot up heroin, you know, it was kind of that level. Um, and so it was, it was incredibly hard for me to decide to stop taking that. Um, I did. And, um, then I just had to figure out a way to, uh, manage pain. Um, and, and so that was quite a journey. So what was the, what were the lessons that you learned from going through that situation and that trauma? Uh, you know, I learned, I learned a lot. Um, a big one that, that I can share that I think is relevant to folks is I learned about scar tissue. Um, so it, it's really interesting, this thing about scar tissue. Um, what happens is when you have a, like a, a big trauma, um, your body, uh, you know, develops like this scar tissue and it's very special tissue. Um, it's very dense and, and sort of meaty tissue and your body initially develops that to protect you uh, and to protect that, that area of injury. Um, but over time, once the underlying injury heals, um, that scar tissue becomes a burden to your body. It takes mm. its unfair share of, of you know, blood and, um, you know, resources. Um, and, and so, you know, it would be nice to just say like, okay, done with you, don't need you anymore. Uh, but what happens is um, it's very, very hard to get rid of scar tissue. And um, ultimately, I, you know, I, I, I wanted surgery. I wanted all, cause the scar tissue was, was very, um, it was impinging on my nerve bundle. Um, the actual, you know, stuff that originally what developed to keep the pain from happening was now pushing on the nerve bundle and causing a lot of pain. And imagine my frustration and horror when I learned that the only effective way that doctors have come up with to um, get rid of scar tissue, because if you like do a surgery to take it out, you, you, form another scar and it's, it's worse. Um, there's no medicine for it, but what you have to do is you have to, you have to manipulate it. You have to push on it. Essentially you have to rub it. You have to, you have to injure yourself a little bit, um, often multiple times each day for an extended multi-month period of time in order to break that scar tissue down. And so what you essentially have to do is you have to, in little bits and pieces, feel the deferred pain that the scar tissue was, was created to protect you from in the first place. And it's the only way to get past it. Um, and dang, if that wasn't like a major life lesson, like emotional, spiritual life lesson for me at the same time that I was going through the physical lesson, um, because in life, we're so much like that. There's um, so many sort of um, you know, wounded, scared people who have the scar tissue of being bullies or being, you know, abusers or being jerks. Um, and, and, and yet the way forward is, is to sort of, um, you know, sit in that pain and work through it and move on. And today I don't have scar tissue and I do have the full use of, of my, my arm. And I, I have a little pain, um, but, but it's manageable. Um, and it's, you know, it's the result, not of some miracle drug or diet or something else, but it's a, a result of um, kind of, you know, experiencing um, that pain until I worked through it. Well, the growth that you probably went through in having that trauma and going through that probably is, uh, it, 
you couldn't pay for that in uh, 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 going and seeing a psychologist. You know, yeah. it's like the, 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 the maturity that comes with something like that is just amazing. It reminds me so much of what I went through in a 12-step program. It's mm-hmm. talking about sitting down and figuring out who you are for the first time and living through that pain. And when you were talking, it reminded me of one of the quotes that I, I use every day, which is, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Huh. And huh. it's so yeah. interesting to hear the way that you had to deal with it multiple times a day to get rid of that pain is you had mm-hmm. to face it head on. And then now, now here you sit. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I probably, you know, next time I need someone to like give me the 12 step program information a little sooner. Thank you. Well, I, I always say that it's like, uh, I'm grateful that I went through that situation. And I, I wish so many people that uh, I wish that so many people or every person could go through the 12 mm-hmm. steps because it really is, it, it's, it's just for life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I went, uh, I went into a 12 step program because I had a problem drinking. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a problem drinking. I had no problem drinking, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a drinking problem. I went in to quit drinking. And what I did is I went in to learn how to live. Wow. You wow. know, and it's, uh, it's something that saved my life. And, you know, I, I like I said before, I've got a two and a half year old now huh. that's just because of that, you know, it's because of what we talked about before, which is doing the next right thing by my fellow human beings and God gives you everything you need, you know, when when you don't even know you need it. I believe that man. See, look, well, first of all, um, I am so thankful that you told me, um, this, um, and congratulations to you and, and look at the reward and the path forward with your two and a half year old. I mean, um, you know, what, what an opportunity for you to continue to grow. Um, I I've got older kids, so I can tell you, um, being a parent, um, involves continuous growth for you and your kid. Um, you know, we're, we're called to be better versions of ourselves, like every single day with, with our kids. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you have, um, you have such an exciting path ahead of you. Yeah. I, I, uh, I treasure it every day and it's been a, it's been a really great thing with, uh, the pandemic that I get to spend so much more time with him. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's you like, know, just, he's not going to want to let that go either. No, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to let it go. You know, it's one of the things that uh, I was talking about with the, uh, Harry, the CIO from Z- uh, zoom, mm-hmm. you know, same thing. He, he said he was on a plane three times a week. Yeah. You know, exactly. and he's like, you know, now I'm back. I'm working on my house. He goes, it's not going to go back to that. Yeah. You know, there's no Same. reason to go back to that. There's no reason to kill ourselves for these things that we can do remotely. We can do this kind of thing where we're talking to each other face to face, really. And we can see each other's emotions, facial expressions, everything. We'll yeah. still get together, you know, human to human every once right. in a while, but it's not going to be the way it was before. And right. And plus, after this, I have like, you know, salami and cheese right downstairs. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I have a couple other softball questions I like to ask to everybody at the end of this. OK, so if you had to never worry about money again, what would you do with your life? I would open a little 
bakery bookstore and uh, bake food and uh, talk to people about books. Ooh, I, I would eat that food and I would read those books. Who is the person or persons in your life who most inspire or inspired you? Right now, it's it's my kids. Um, my my son, who is um, who has created this this rich social world online. My daughter, who has literally written a novel, found a real life publisher, and published it at age thirteen during the pandemic. What's the name of her book? <laughs> It's called A Shining Image, A Shining Image, and it's by Holly M. Pfeiffer. Um, buy it. It's available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble, and uh, every dollar goes into her bank account. So, yeah. Um, you know, and it's a good book, too. You know, the opening line of the book is, hope is a distraction. Uh, it's kind of a, a young adult novel. So, I mean, th- my kids are really inspiring to me um, at a time where as an adult, I thought, oh no, it's all going to end. thriving, <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Um, well, what really gets you excited when you go to work? <sighs> you know, it's, it's the people, it's the team um, and gadgets. I, I really like gadgets. Um, the, 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 the more, the better. Um, since I can't go into work, we just bought a robot vacuum. So like, I mean, I'm just so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a cat? Does a cat ride around on it? I have two cats. Uh, one is aggressive and the other is a scaredy cat and, uh, the scaredy cat has made friends with it and the aggressive cat is hiding. So (laughs) that means, I don't know what it means. (laughs) What was the most notable event that led you to where you are today? Hmm. This can be over your whole life. It's a series of small things. I wish I could say that it's something notable. Um, you know, I like to think of, um, you know, my life, um, the navigation of my life has been like flying an airplane. You know, when you turn autopilot on, um, the autopilot makes thousands of tiny course corrections every hour to keep the, the plane on course. And, and I feel like that's pretty much um, the way I live. I, I'm just uh, making thousands of tiny course corrections. The way that translates, sadly, uh, for my husband is that like every day I have a new idea. Let's move to Montana. <laughs> Buy, a, you know, the, the health club downtown that's just gone out of business, you know. <laughs> Let's go vegan like every day. So um, I just make a lot of course corrections and I can't say that anyone has um, really led to this, uh, but it's the collection of all of them. I think that it's, it's really funny. My wife says the same thing to me. Um, just that I have all of these different ideas mm-hmm. and, uh, it's, I think it's, it's really, uh, I'm not sure it's the entrepreneurial it's, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's been that way my whole life. And I'm sure it has been for you too. It's insanity. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah. I think the term is uh, schizophrenia, but I'm not positive, <laughs> but it's okay. I own that. You know, yeah. I own that. <laughs> exactly. So. I'm going to end it the same way I end it with everybody else. The True Ambition Podcast. I named this after a passage that I took out of a 12-step program book. Uh, that, That passage says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. 
True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. When I read that five plus years ago, it kind of changed my life. Uh, prior to that, um, my ambition was to get whatever John wanted, you know, whether that was money, power, women, whatever it was. Um, after that, um, I kind of changed my ambitions to help other people look out for more than just myself. And when I did that, when I changed my perspective, good things started to happen. So my question for you, you've done a lot of amazing things. You've been a lot of amazing places. Knowing what you know now, being where you've been, what is your true ambition moving forward, both in your career and in your personal life? In my career, my true ambition is to move more and more into corporate board service. I really feel like um, this, this role on corporate boards is one of help. I can speak um, uh, help and, and uh, you know, wisdom into entrepreneurs and into uh, company leaders that has um, oversized, you know, overscaled results more so than I can in my own operating career. And personally, it's, it's truly for my children and my husband and I um, to have, you know, healthy, close relationships with each other as a family and hopefully someday as an extended family, um, you know, for, for the ages to come. I, I want us to um, continue to thrive and grow. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you being here today, Wendy. It's been awesome. I think that uh, we've learned a lot and had some good laughs. And uh, I hope this helps out somebody who's watching today. So I appreciate you being here. I do too. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was uh, amazing. Thank you. Okay. Everybody, thanks for tuning in to the True Ambition Podcast. We'll see you next time. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I